Hebrews chapter 3, verse 19. We're going to read through 4.11. Guard your heart against unbelief. So beginning in the last verse of chapter 3 of Hebrews, verse 19. There's a conclusion that the preacher comes to after his argumentation that he's given us in the rest of chapter 3. He says, so we see that they were unable, they were the unbelieving Israelites. They were unable to enter into the rest of God because of unbelief. Then, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, another conclusion, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, it being the rest. For good news came to us, justice to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken on the seventh day in in this way, of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Verse 5, and again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. All right. So if you recall from chapter 3, we covered those uh, the last few weeks. We saw that the preacher he makes the conclusion about what it was that kept the people of Israel from entering into the promised land, which was the rest for the time that God had prepared for them. And the thing that prevented them from entering, if you remember, was unbelief. Amen. They did not trust God, even after all that they had seen him do. They did not trust him, and so, because they did not trust him, they did not treasure him. And because they did not treasure him, they were not faithful to him. Trusting and treasuring are very tightly wound up together. It is it's very difficult, I've done a lot of thinking on this, it's very difficult, almost impossible, I think, to treasure something or to treasure someone that you do not trust. Let me give you an example. 
uh, with something that is as unimportant as, as food. So I, I treasure the caramel lattes from Paris Bakery. You have heard me talk about them before. That's how much I treasure them. They are very good. Some of the best lattes I've ever had from anywhere. Hands down, there are no close seconds. They're always good. I've never had one that was just meh. Yeah, never. It's always mm, wonderful, fantastic, ever. And I have had many of their lattes. In fact, I've had so many of them that when I walk in the door, they begin making it. They don't wait for me to get to the counter to place my order. They just know he's having a double caramel latte. And they start making it. That's how many of them I have had. I treasure those lattes for two equally important reasons. Number one, they're good. They're really good. I mean, they taste good. They bring me pleasure. They pleasure and please my senses, right? I treasure them because they're good. And number two, just as important as them being good, they are consistently good. Meaning, I've never had a bad one. It's always been good. Every time I go, it's the, it's the same kind of quality that I have come to trust. I trust it. I trust that when I go to Paris Baker and I order a caramel latte, it's going to be a pleasant, delightful experience every time, and therefore, I treasure them. What does it mean when I say I treasure them? I go out of my way. I will make plans and excuses to go to Paris Bakery to get a latte because I treasure them. My heart desires them, right? Here's the thing. What if the quality, the flavor, the goodness of that latte were inconsistent? Not So what if I go in one day, like today, I go in today and I get a latte and it's delicious. Now, ooh, I'm going to come back tomorrow and get one. But then I come back tomorrow and it's some watered down mess or some overly sweetened, you know, monstrosity. And it's just not any good. And then I go the next day and, and it's just okay. And then I go back and have another great one. You know, I mean, it's just inconsistent all the way through. I'm just, I don't, I can't, I can't be sure that what I'm going to get is, is something that I'm going to enjoy. No consistency. So what does that do to my trust? I can't trust it anymore, right? And, and what do you think that does to my treasuring? I mean, I may have a great experience this day, but then tomorrow I may have a terrible experience. What does that do to my treasuring of those things? It's going to, it's going to reduce it, right? I'm not going to treasure it. I'm not going to seek it out. I'm, I'm, uh, I don't know. It's hit or miss. The fact is, if, if they weren't consistent... I wouldn't treasure them at all because I couldn't trust them. I know it's a silly example, but I, I want you to see how that applies to grander things. Let's apply it to people, right? Let's get down and let's get personal. Apply it to your spouse. Of all the people in the world, your spouse is probably the person that you trust the most. And consequently, as a result of that trusting, it is probably the person who you treasure the most. So what happens when something comes in to erode 
that trust. What happens if your spouse, who you trust and treasure, betrays your trust? What does that do to your treasuring? Now, after some kind of betrayal of trust, treasuring becomes work, right? It's hard. It's something you have to keep reminding yourself of. You know, and sometimes, difficultly so, especially in a situation like that where there's been some kind of a betrayal, there's no amount of reminding us that is going to suffice. We're so hurt and damaged by the betrayal that your trust has been destroyed so much you can no longer treasure. So you're, you're not a treasure to me anymore. You're a tribulation. You're not a place of trust for me anymore. You are a trial. I think it's easy for us to see, especially in, in that lens, that how trusting and treasuring, they go hand in hand. Looking at it through the lens of someone who has been betrayed. You did something that hurt me. I can no longer trust you as a source of joy, so I no longer treasure you. Okay? You see that? It, it works the other way, though, as well. Turn it around. Let me go back to the latte just for a second. Paris Baker has got a great latte. It's... One of the things that makes it great is that it's, it's simple. The flavors are consistent throughout. It is beautifully elegant in its simplicity and, and how unassuming it is. There's nothing fancy to look at it. I mean, if you've ordered fancy, fancy coffees from a, a, you know, a big, one of the big chains, Starbucks or whatever, you, you, they're fancy to look at. Nothing like that with Paris Bakery. It's a, just caramel milk with espresso in a paper cup. Nothing fancy to look at. So let's say I go have this latte at Paris Bakery, and it tastes amazing, and, and it does. And it's nothing special to look at, which it isn't. And then I go to one of the big-name coffee shops, and I get one of their candy drinks that they try to pass off as coffee. And it's just super fancy. And they've got drizzles and sprinkles and splashes and dashes, and they put whipped cream on top. And you look at it, and you're like, wow, that looks amazing. But then you drink it, and it's like drinking a milkshake, not coffee. Like, they have, is there any coffee in here? It's just sickeningly sweet. I mean, they're not any good. Quit drinking that mess. They're terrible. They call themselves candy uh, coffee shops, but they're really just candy stores. So here's the thing. In, instead of going back to the simple, elegant, delicious simplicity that I get from Paris Bakery. I'm, I'm lured by the, you know, the bright lights and the fancy sprinkles and the sparkles and the, the drizzles of these candy drinks from these other coffee shops. So I, I keep trying them because I'm trying to convince myself that there has to be one out there that is better, that, that tastes just as good, that gives me that simple elegance of the Paris Bakery drink, but also has the flashiness of these other drinks, and that is a contradiction because the two cannot exist in one time. The more, the more sprinkles and sparkles and splashes and dashes you add to it, the sweeter it gets and the more sickly it gets. You don't get simple elegance with flashiness. So it's a, and in the whole time I'm doing that, whole time I'm doing that, I'm denying myself 
looking for some false sense of satisfaction. I'm denying myself what I was really satisfied with, the simple, beautiful flavors at Paris Bakery, and I'm going after this sickly sweet stuff. Right? Once again, it's a silly example, but let's apply it to people. This is what happens on the other side of betrayal. When you are the one doing the betraying. You know, you're, you're in a marriage relationship. What you have is good and wholesome. It's a marriage. It's trust and treasure. But little by little, you begin to peel away areas of trust and give them to something or someone else. This is what happens. So you're, you're leaning on someone else for certain kinds of fulfillment that you should be getting from your spouse. Emotional fulfillment. Physical fulfillment. And slowly and surely, what happens? Your trust shifts, and so does your treasure. The Bible teaches us that where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So that's that your heart, that, that's your, your passions, your, your desires, your will. Those things follow your treasure, and your treasure follows your trust. Now, this is true in, in matters of lifetime consequence like marriage and family. It's true there. So then it is doubly true in matters of eternal consequence like heaven and hell. Amen. For the Christian walk, just like with marriage, it is possible for someone to be completely engaged in the moment, to be fully committed, to be you know, to see the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ, to the greatness of His mercy and His forgiveness, and to put trust in Him and treasure Him for salvation. In other words, to be redeemed. It's possible for someone to be redeemed, to be saved. Similarly to how we are married. You know, marriage is a, is a lifetime walk and a lifetime work. And yet... It happens all at once. You're, you're, you're not married, and then you're married. You're, you're not saved, and then you're saved. You're not redeemed, and then you're redeemed. It happens all at once. But again, just like in marriages, in our Christian walk, our trust and our treasure can shift. It's no accident, it's no mistake that the Apostle Paul compares the relationship of Jesus Christ to his church with a marriage. Look around you at the churches around us across the country. How many of the bride of Christ have abandoned their first love and still call themselves churches? Your treasure and your trust can shift. Do you, you remember the parable of the sower in Matthew 13? There, so that teaches us that there are people who hear the word of God. They receive it with joy. The word springs up into new life within them. That's new life. That's what the Bible says. New life. That's, that's redemption. We are dead in our trespasses. We are alive in Christ. But these particular people in the parable they're represented by the rocky ground. They have no root, which means they have no depth of faith. They did not strengthen or deepen 
their faith. And so what happens when the trials of life come and tribulations come and persecutions come? They fall away. They fall away. There was new life and now there's no longer life. They fall away. The same thing is seen for others, the ones that are, are the, represented by the thorny ground. You know, the, the seed of God's Word comes in, it takes hold, springs up, but the Bible says the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke it out, and so it's unfruitful. This tells us from the mouth of Jesus that we must take care to prepare and to maintain the soil of our hearts. To make sure, specifically referencing our passage in Hebrews, to take care that we keep our trust and our treasure in Jesus Christ. We saw last week how we, me and you, the body of Christ, the church, we are appointed as a means for helping one another to keep the faith, to stay out of that dangerous area of unbelief. You and I are meant to help one another. We are our brother's keepers, right? We're meant to help one another, be a means appointed by God to help you, each other, stay out of the area of unbelief. So that when you start you know, wavering and your faith starts faltering and things start happening and you think, oh, I just don't know anymore, we are supposed to come and encourage you. That's what Hebrews 3.13 says. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that no one may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's why he tells us to do that. So that sin and its deceitfulness does not get a grip on you and cause you to flow, fall into unbelief. So I went through all of that because chapter 3 ends telling us that it is because of unbelief, that's, you know, we don't have any trust or any treasure in God, that the Israelites were not able to enter God's rest. It was unbelief that kept them out. Amen. They, they lost their, their trust in God, so they did not treasure Him, so they turned away from Him. So chapter 3 tells us corporately take care of each other. Then chapter 4 verse 1 then comes to tell us individually, you must fear lest any of us should seem to have fallen away or failed to reach God's rest. Now here's, here's the logic, uh, the progression in, in chapter 4, the first 11 verses. Chapter 3 comes at the end, tells us, you know, uh, the end of chapter 3, then the first 11 verses of chapter 4. Number one, the argument goes like this. The Israelites were not able to enter God's rest because of their unbelief. Two, the same danger exists for Christians. So you need to take care to make sure you don't fall into unbelief because you'll all wind up just like them, unable to enter God's rest. Number three, there remains, in fact, a place of rest for God's people that we have yet to see. And number four, therefore, because of all of that, strive, which means be eager with intense desire, with great care, strive to enter that rest. There is a race that is set before us, and we must run to win it. Amen. Amen. Okay, so let me go through those real quickly. End of chapter 3, unbelief kept them out of God's rest. Chapter 4, verse 1, the promise of entering God's rest still stands, so we must take great care. In fact, the word says fear so that we don't miss it. 
And then verse 2 explains why that's important to us as believers. So back in verse 1, do you, do you see where he says, let us fear? In verse 1, let us fear. Who's he talking to? Talking to unbelievers or believers? He's talking to believers, talking to Christians, right? Believers. And, and I assure you that the preacher in Hebrews considers himself a believer, considers himself a follower, a redeemed in Christ. And yet, he says, let us fear. We should all fear. And what reason do we have for this fear? That's verse 2, which gives us, by way of a real-life example, almost the same thing that Jesus said in the parable of the sower. Good news came to them in the same way it came to us. The sower sowed the seed, and it fell on all the ground the same way. We were given many proofs and testimonies and demonstrations about who Jesus is and what He came to do. Just as the Israelites were given many proofs and testimonies and demonstrations about who God is and what He intended for them. But they did not mix it. They didn't mix their knowledge with faith. Hang your hat on this right here. Knowledge, that means... uh, intellectual assent, intellectual agreement, is not the same thing as faith. Knowing a thing and trusting and treasuring a thing are not the same thing. We see examples of this in Scripture. The demons know, but they do not trust and treasure. We're we're given the Israelites as an example. They knew They did not trust and treasure. They did not delight in the promises and the faithfulness and the goodness of God. And so their knowledge did not benefit them one bit because they were without faith, which means that they were without belief, trust and treasure. So what was the consequence? They did not enter God's rest. God's rest is reserved for those who believe, those who put their faith, their trust, and their treasure in Christ. The wrath of God, God's wrath is reserved for those who live in unbelief, who do not put their faith in Christ. The preacher provides us with what I call a reverse proof. So he's appealing to the negative to prove the positive. And then we see this in verse 3. It says, For we who have believed enter the rest. That's the assumption. That's That's what he's trying to prove. We who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, or because God said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So he says that because it was in the wrath of God that God said, They shall not enter my rest. And it was the wrath of God that was directed at their unbelief. Therefore, mercy is reserved for those who do believe. Those of faith. Those who trust and treasure in Christ. So the rest of God is for those who believe. 
and those who don't believe are kept I'm out of the sure rest. I, I don't know why Siri's talking to me right now. That's the first two logical points. Unbelieving Israel were not able to enter God's rest because of their unbelief. We must all be very careful that the same thing doesn't happen to us. Specifically, we must be careful that we don't fall away into unbelief. Do, do, you, do, you, not, do you feel like this is not an important thing that the preacher took the time to say this? And the specific words they use, let us fear. It's a big deal. The next several verses are, are his argument that there remains for us a rest. There remains a rest that we have not yet seen, a promised rest that has yet to come. So th- this, is the, this is the point right here. This is the basis for all the other for all the warnings because something is waiting. There is a rest for us that we've not yet seen. Amen. Something greater than what you've you've thought of. Something greater than what you've ever seen or heard of. It is it is it is waiting for us. And we don't want to miss it. And he spends the next several verses taking us through some historical periods where God gave a kind of rest to his people. But that was not the final, lasting, eternal rest that God Himself enjoys and that God has invited us to enjoy forever with Him. Amen. That's where He begins at the end of verse 3. It's a weird way to transition. He says, although His works were finished from the foundation of the world. Well, in Genesis, the Bible says that on the seventh day, God rested from all His works. So the preacher in Hebrews he is saying that even though God entered His rest from the foundation of the world, the door is still open. The promise still remains for us to enter in that rest with Him. That's, that's verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. That's God's rest. The promise remains. The door is still open. Therefore God has appointed a certain day today. So, He's, a, he's saying, you know, God already said He entered His rest. But then He says later, today, don't harden your hearts. So God has appointed a certain day today, meaning now, while it is today. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 13, as long as it is today, exhort one another. Back in verse 7 of chapter 3, he's quoting Psalm 95 we read this morning. He's telling us that today is now, for as long as it is now. Well, well, when is now? It's right now. If you're not careful, you'll miss it. This is not a minute ago. That was then. This is now. Not a minute from now, but right now. It's always right now. Right now, do not harden your hearts as long as it is right now. Amen. But guess what? It's never not right now. It's always right now. The time to humble yourself and to trust God and to treasure God is always right now. The final rest wasn't when God brought them out of Egypt. That was a kind of rest because they were delivered from bondage, but God had something better for them than just not being slaves. He had a promised land, a place for them to rest 
But the promised land wasn't the final rest either. That's verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day hundreds of years later through David. Again, referencing Psalm 95. And then the conclusion to that little section of his argument in verse 9 is that, it, just as we stated earlier, there, is a, there remains a promised rest for the people of God, for believers. Well, you haven't missed it, is what he's saying. We've not missed it. The, the door is still open. The lasting rest is one that we have not yet experienced but that is still promised to us. And because it is real and we haven't missed it and the door is still open, because that final rest is yet to happen and it is a promise of God and God's promises are yes and amen, therefore, verse 11, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is the logical conclusion to the argument in these verses. Beginning in the last verse of verse, chapter 3, because of unbelief, the Israelites were kept out of God's rest. Because of unbelief, it is a danger for us also in the same way. And because the promise of the rest still remains and is still open for us, Therefore, this is the conclusion, we must strive to enter that rest. Amen. What does it mean to strive? It means to be eager to do it. Are you eager for the coming of the Lord? We must take great care to make sure we don't fall away Amen. into unbelief. We must push for it and Aim for it and keep it center. Like we said last week, we, we, we don't coast through Christianity. We don't, it's not a one and done thing. No more than a marriage is a one and done thing. It's a lifetime commitment and a lifetime work. Are we, are we saved at once? Sure, just like we're married at once. But it takes, it takes a whole lot of grace whole lot of faith, whole lot of trusting and treasuring to stay married. Amen. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know it really well right now. Yeah. We must strive to enter that rest. We must care for our own souls and the souls of each other. Amen. So in the very few minutes I have left, I, I want to say a few words about the the practical implications of all of this. There are two times in this passage that we are told to take great care. Verse 1, he says, let us fear. And then in verse 11, he says, let us strive. And, and when he says fear, he means fear, be afraid. And when he says strive, he means work at it. Don't, don't let it out of your sight. Push toward it. What is it that we are to fear? What are we to strive against? So many times, the Bible tells us to not be afraid, right? Everyone loves that. The 365 times the Bible commands us, do not fear. And that's true. There's a reason for that. 
So what gives here? The fact is that there are a few times in the Bible where we are told that we should be very afraid. You should fear. One of them is right here. Let us fear. Not my words. These are God's words. There are another one, and there are many others, but another one is when Jesus tells us that we should not fear the one who can kill the body, but we should instead fear the one who can destroy the soul. Who's he talking about? God. Paul said in Philippians 2 that we should work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And again in Romans 11, Paul says, you know, you, you stand fast through faith alone. So don't be conceited, but fear. You don't get puffed up, you should stand trembling. So what does this mean? Let us fear. Are we supposed to live lives of constant terror that we might miss it? Are we, you know, I think I mentioned this before back in the day, they used to tell kids, boy, you better be careful because if you say a cuss word and you die right after that, that's it, you're done. You stub your toe and have a heart attack, that's it, you're done. You, I mean, it's just a weak salvation that, that they taught. And I, I'm not teaching that. Salvation is strong. So are we to live in constant terror that we might miss it, that we might suddenly do something wrong and get zapped and condemned? Is that how we're supposed to live? Is that what he means by let us fear? Remember back in chapter 2, verse 15, we talked about that, oh, it's been probably six weeks ago now. The, the preacher, he told us that Jesus died in order to deliver those who through fear had become slaves all their life, through fear of death. So he died so that we wouldn't be slaves to fear. So the, the preacher cannot mean that we are to be slaves to fear, that we're to live in, in terror. He cannot mean that here. Just look at the life and the ministry and the commandments of Jesus. He, he wants us to go into the hard-to-reach places where the gospel is not welcomed. He wants us to love people who persecute us and to pray for people who abuse us. He wants us to be unafraid of the trials of life. Don't fear the ones who can harm you in your body. He wants us instead to take joy in the trials that come. That's what we learned from James. Count it all joy, my brothers, because when the trials come, it works in us patience, and patience makes us perfect in Christ. We should not be afraid of the things that can hurt us, that can hurt the body. But there is one thing that we should fear. Unbelief. Having no faith. We should fear having unbelief in the promises of God. Because as long as you're trusting in God's promises, you can be fearless in the face of anything. You can be fearless 
in the face of death. It is only trust in God's promises that allows us to say, O death, where is your sting? It doesn't hurt. It can't hurt me because I trust in God. Let me, let me go you one even bigger. If you have a big God theology, this one's huge. If you trust in the promises of God, you can stand before God without fear. Amen. Because he promised it. And it is only through his promise that we can do that. The Bible says, therefore, come boldly to the throne. Boldness is without fear. So what does this look like for us? What does this practically look like? I, I read an example uh, as I was preparing, and it, it, uh, it really stuck at me, and it seemed to hit the nail on the head for me. So it, it went something like this. Do you, do you remember when you were little, and you go outside in your play, and your mom and dad would tell you, don't go out into the street. Don't run into the street. Stay away from the street. Always look both ways. The street is dangerous because there are cars zooming back and forth and you can get run over. In other words, you should fear running into the street. Do you you remember that? Am I the only one that got told that? Okay. So you should fear running into the street. So that's true, right? But what that does not mean is that you can't have fun in your front yard without worrying about the street. Or in the backyard without worrying about the street. Or going to the park without worrying about the street. You can enjoy all of those things without giving a second thought to the danger that the street poses. In fact, if you remember growing up, most of the time, you, you never even gave a second thought about being afraid of going into the street or the warning that came about going into the street. It was only when you got close to the street, when your ball rolled out into the street, that then your senses perked up and you, you became suddenly very aware of those warnings and, and so then you moved with fear. The rest of the time, though, The fear of the street kept you playing in places where you didn't have to feel fear at all. Very safe, very comfortable. Kept you in safe places. That's the way that the fear of unbelief works. You don't don't live in terror all the time. You don't have a bad feeling about it all the time. You, You experience that fear, that terror, when there are temptations that come your way that cause you to distrust God and His promises, to to peel away layers of trust in what He's promised you and what He's told you and thereby transfer your treasure somewhere else. So the caution is, the warning is, that we should use that terror that fear to send us running back into safe places. Back into the goodness and the promises and the will of God where there is no reason to be afraid. So the the normal Christian life is one that is aware 
of the fearful danger of unbelief, but we're not paralyzed, we're not terrorized by it. Because we live in faith. Fear only rises when faith begins to weaken. And it's like a fence for us. God's given us a fence. He says, fear this. It's a fence for us, or at least it should be. Some of you don't listen to it very well. Some of you get that, that feeling in your heart like, I shouldn't be doing this. And you do it anyway. You don't run back into the goodness and the graciousness and the will and the pleasant presence of God. You want to you experience that, I don't know, that thrill and that danger. Let me tell you, in the Christian life, there's all kinds of danger as it is to your body. We are, and we're called to do it. We're called to do it. Put ourselves in harm's way. You are never called to put your soul in harm's way. Amen. Amen. Ever. Amen. The fear, when, when you get that, that uneasy feeling, that, that should send you running back into the shelter of God's will. That uneasiness that we get, you know that we're straying from the promise of God, and you know it. Don't look at me like you're all spiritual. You know it. So God's message to us through all of this, I think, today is that you haven't missed it. There, there is a rest. And it's open. The door is not shut. The time is not past. We haven't missed our final opportunity. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And the door to that rest is faith, trust and treasure, belief in Jesus Christ, the promise of God. You know, the Bible teaches us that anybody who puts their faith in the promises of God that are purchased for us by the blood of Jesus, we, we are careful to not throw that faith away. We are part of the people of God. And the preacher in Hebrews says, those of us who believe, we do enter that rest. So, so in the final admonition in verse 11, let us then strive. Keep your guard up so that you don't peel away layers of trust and treasure for something else. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and I'm grateful to you for your word I'm grateful to you for these warnings that have come to us, but also the great promise that you've given us, that there remains for us a rest, Lord, that you have promised us. It is eternal and lasting rest, where there will be no sickness and no sorrow. Amen. We won't be bound to sin anymore. We won't be tempted by it anymore, Amen. but we will be able to bask in your glory and rest in your goodness forever and ever. Father, help us to keep our eyes on that prize. And as the scripture has, has challenged us to do, Lord, help us to strive to enter into that rest so that when the trials of life come and when tribulations come, Lord, we keep pressing to the mark of the high calling that you've given us in Jesus Christ. Let us keep our faith for you. Help us to be bold for you so we can approach the throne and obtain mercy and find grace. You are good to us. Keep us safe as we go our separate ways, Lord, and bring us back at the appointed time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.